Please turn with me in your copies of God's Word to James chapter 1 as we continue our series there. I had some printer issues, so I'll be preaching from my phone. If you wanted to contact me, please wait until the benediction is pronounced. Hopefully you wouldn't need to be told that anyway. James chapter 1, let us pray and ask for God's blessing upon the preaching of His Word. Great God of heaven, what privilege it is to be in relationship with You through Jesus Christ by the power of Your Spirit. May this privilege and all the privileges attendant to it never cease to amaze us, but may we only grow in amazement of them, and may we live in light of them. May we live in accord with our privileges to be resurrected with Jesus Christ, to be seated in the the heavenly places with Him, to have Him as our very life. And may we delight to have this, Your Word, read and opened up to us, and may the Holy Spirit, who wrote this Word, indwell us and illumine us to see the glory of Jesus Christ and cause us to put off wickedness and to receive this word with meekness for our, our everlasting salvation. We ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now please stand for the reading of God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. James chapter 1, beginning at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, here we come to another transition in the book of James. Up to this point, James has directed our attention to the benefit of trials and the testing of temptation, the call to endurance and faithfulness in them, and, the, and for the need for us to remember God's character in the midst of them as well. So here we come to a transition. So from this point all the way through the end of chapter 2, in one way or another, James will be driving home to us the importance of obedience to God's Word. James, as well as every other book of the Bible, has no room for antinomianism. That's a good word for you to know so that you know to avoid it. Anti, meaning against. Namos, the Greek word for law, means antinomian, someone who is against God's law, someone who thinks that God's moral law has no bearing on my life now as a believer, that salvation is salvation from the law, pure and simple. And one reason antinomianism is such a deadly poison in the church is that it takes a knife to God's Word and cuts out all the commands and says to the believer, you don't need to worry about these parts, just believe in Jesus and do whatever you want. That is not an option for James, that's not an option for Paul or for Jesus or for the prophets before them. God's law still applies to the believer. Think of the words of Jesus in John 14, 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So God's law is the rule of our obedience. When you come to Christ and you are saved, God does not have you uh, leave you to yourself to figure out how to live from then on out. God would not be a merciful and gracious God if He left you to figure out how to live, would He? 
But because God is now your Father, through Jesus Christ, He shows you His Word. He says, this is how you should live, my child. This is my will for your life. This is what you were made for. This is what I saved you for. This is what pleases me. This is for your good and for my glory. Think of how Richard Gaffin summarizes the role of God's law in the life of the believer. With the gospel and in Christ, united to him by faith, the law is no longer my enemy, but my friend. Why? Because now God is no longer my enemy, but my friend. And the law, his will, the law in its moral core, as reflective of his character and of concerns eternally inherent in his own person, and so of what pleases him, is now my friendly guide for life in fellowship with God. And so do you see that God's law, obedience to God, what God has required of his children, is delight, at least that it should be. And of course, each of us struggle with sin, with the remaining corruption, the indwelling sin within each heart of the believer. We still fall short of what God requires, but that isn't the point here. The point is, if you are a believer, in your heart of hearts, you love what God loves and you hate what He hates. You want to walk in conformity to what He has said because He has saved you, because He has made you His own, because He loves you and you love Him, however imperfectly. So ultimately, for the believer, you are grateful for God's law because without it, you would never figure out how to live in this world without it. As we've seen throughout our series in James James is all about spiritual maturity. James has shown us that one of the ways we mature in the Lord is through trials. Just as heat purifies gold and enables the goldsmith to remove the impurities, trials purify and mature the believer. And another way we mature as believers is our obedience to the Word of God. So that's, that is the focus that James will have for quite a while in our series in this book. Before we look more carefully at our passage this evening, we need to get an overview. Look there at verse 18 for context. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. And you see there how he refers to God's word as the word of truth. So if you are a believer, it was God's word that was the instrument he used to save you whether it was at school or in your private Bible reading, family worship, the preaching of the Word, some open-air evangelist, whatever it was, God used His Word by the power of His Spirit to grant you resurrection life, to raise you from the dead, to give you ability and desire to take hold of Jesus Christ for your eternal salvation. So here in, in verse 18, we're looking back to the beginning of the Christian life. That is how God saved you, was by the instrumentality, God using His Word as the instrument to save you from your sin. But now, look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted Word, which is able to save your souls." So you see there how he refers to God's Word as the implanted Word. So here we're, we're talking not about the beginning of the Christian life, when you first came to Christ, we're talking about the continuation of the Christian life. And how is the Christian life continued? How is the Christian life maintained? James tells us there in verse 21, by receiving, continually receiving God's Word. So do you see how important the Bible is for the Christian life? It is what God used to make you a Christian. It is what God used, 
uses to mature you as a Christian. If you are a believer, you are a man, woman, or child of the book. Just as God uses His Word to save you, He also uses His Word to grow you and mature you in His Son. And the main point in this passage before us tonight is that a mature believer listens to God's Word. A mature believer listens to God's Word. And James applies this main point in three ways. First of all, how we should live, why we should live that way, and how we should live the way we should live. Very briefly, just notice verse 22, where James says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. And we'll see this more next week, Lord willing, hopefully on paper and not on a screen. James is not saying, don't worry about hearing, just do. Don't worry about creeds, just do deeds. James is not saying anything like that. He's saying, no, you have to do both. You have to be a hearer and a doer. We'll focus on doing, as we'll see next week, but you must be a hearer because there can be no doing without hearing. And we'll, as we'll see next week, hearing must lead to doing. So we're focusing here on how the believer, the mature believer, must be a hearer, must listen to God speaking in His Word. So first of all, how we should live. Verse 19, James gives us a sample of how to walk in obedience to God now that the Word has made us new, new creation in Jesus Christ, has brought us to newness of life in Him. Look there at verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And if we are honest, much of the time we live as if James says, let every person be slow to hear, quick to speak, quick to anger. That comes naturally, doesn't it? Sin comes naturally even for the believer. We still battle our remaining corruption, and, that's, and that is all the more reason we need the exhortation from God's Word to set us straight. How we listen, how we speak, what kind of anger we have, these are matters of Christian maturity. They're not irrelevant for James. They are, they are matters of Christian maturity. So since James is primarily talking about our attention to God's Word, our listening to it, it is appropriate to see that command there to be quick to hear as a command to hear God's Word. A command to hear God's Word as Calvin prayed promptly and sincerely. But we're also talking about relationships, interpersonal relationships within the body of Christ. And I think it's best for us to see this movement here in verse 19 of quick, slow, slow, see that as a package deal. A conflict arises with a fellow believer. Instead of being quick to make yourself look innocent, instead of being quick to shift the blame on the other person, instead of digging your heels in and insisting that you've done nothing wrong, being quick to hear from the other person will go a long way in resolving the conflict. Your humility might lead to their humility too. Listen to this counsel from Matthew Henry. We should be swift to hear reason and truth on all sides and be slow to speak anything that should prevent this. And when we do speak, there should be nothing of wrath, for a soft answer turns away wrath. And you can hear the book of Proverbs in that counsel, can't you? In a conflict, even if, even if you have truly done nothing wrong, and that happens less than we would admit, you can still mature as a believer in that conflict because you will see in a way that you did not before God's patience toward you. James' command is summarized in Proverbs 17, 27, that whoever restrains his words 
has knowledge, and he who has a cool spirit is a man of understanding. And of course, you'll notice that James does not say never speak, never get angry, but be slow to those things. He is telling us not to never speak or be angry, but to be wise in those things. Be slow to speak. Make sure you've been quick to hear first. Be slow to anger because that is who God is. Slow to anger. Think of Exodus 34 when God spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai. Moses wanted to see the, the glory of God, and how did God reveal himself to Moses? Exodus 34, 6. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So you think of all the countless things, all the, the catalog of attributes of God that he could have revealed to Moses. Simple, omniscient, omnipotent, and tons of others. What did God choose to reveal? That he is slow to anger, among other things. What if God was quick to anger? If God was quick to anger, like you and I often are, then history would have been a lot shorter, wouldn't it? (laughs) History would have ended right when Adam ate the fruit. Genesis 1 through 3, that's the history of the entire universe. What if God was quick to anger in your own life? then your life would be a lot shorter, wouldn't it? You would be in hell if God was quick to anger. And so in, in those conflicts, in those interpersonal relationships, be quick to hear, be quick in the sense of no delay. Be quick to hear. Be slow to speak. Speak when it is best to speak. Don't be thinking of what you're going to say while the other person's talking. Listen and then speak. Be slow to anger. Remember that God is slow to anger with you, and you can show the same patience you have received to others. You think of the, the parable that Jesus tells of the servant that's forgiven much, and then, the, and then he, is for, he is forgiven that, that great debt, and then when he has a debt from, from some other fellow servant, a much smaller debt, what does he do? He chokes that servant. Pay what you owe. Obviously, that servant forgot or did not know in his heart the great debt that he was forgiven by his master. Do you sometimes forget the greatness of what you've been forgiven, of the great patience displayed to you by God himself? Does God have a right to be impatient with you? Of course he does. He is the one true God. Do you have a right to be impatient with others? No, because you are a fellow sinner. These are things I need to hear as much as you do. Being slow to anger, how do we do that? Remembering, among other things, remembering who God is, slow to anger with me, and I can be slow to anger with others as well. There's, of course, much more to being a mature believer, but not less than this. Quickness to hear, slowness to speak, slowness to anger. These are characteristics of a mature believer, one who is being conformed to the image of Jesus. That is how to live. Secondly, why we should live that way. We've seen the specific counsel there for how we should live. Now James gives us the reason for it. He points out that there is a difference between your anger and God's righteousness. Notice the reason James warns against sinful anger in verse 20. For the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Is this sinful anger or or righteous anger? There's such a thing as righteous anger, right? James doesn't seem to be interested in that question at this point. 
Doesn't, he doesn't seem interested in plainly saying whether he's talking about righteous or sinful anger. He just makes the sweeping statement, the anger of man, without qualification. So your anger does not bring about God's righteousness. What does that mean? He's simply saying, you are not God, okay? Don't act like you are. When you get upset about something, don't act like God is on your side. You are not God. We need to ask ourselves when we are angry, why? Why am I angry? Of course, much attention could be given to that question, but it comes down to, are you jealous for God's glory or for your own? That's the key issue. And again, we're not saying, James is not saying, never be angry. Think of things that that should make us angry. Does heresy make you angry? Of denial of, of the teaching of God's word? Good. It should make you angry if you have a pulse and you are a believer. Does blasphemy against God make you angry? Good. Then it should. Or do you get angry when you don't get recognized? Or when someone else is praised and you aren't? Or when you are misunderstood? Does your anger focus on yourself and your glory or upon the glory and enjoyment of the one true God. James is calling us to wisdom and maturity, the same kind of wisdom and maturity that that the wisdom literature did centuries earlier. Think of Ecclesiastes 7.9. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry. Why? For anger lodges in the heart of fools. So it is the part of wisdom to overlook offenses, to be slow to anger. You're familiar with how people have come up with many ways of dealing with anger. Even that language of dealing with anger shows how we often view anger as a psychological issue, even a medical issue that should be handled with therapy or medicine, rather than as a moral issue, an issue of the heart that must be addressed in a personal relationship with the one true God. I'm not saying that there's never never a place for medicine, but the primary place is the heart. And the primary answer is in personal relationship with the one true God through Jesus Christ. You know the language about anger. We often hear how to deal with it, how to handle it, how to control it, anger management. There are even attempts to suppress anger just by saying magic words, serenity now, serenity now. The anger just melts off you, serenity now. But can I know if my anger is sinful or righteous? I think so. There could be much more said about this question, but at the very least, listen to how the Puritan John Trapp answers that question. He that will be angry and not sin must not be angry but for sin. Did you catch that? He that will be angry and not sin must not be angry but for sin. So if sin makes you angry, if what is out of accord with God's nature and and contradictory to his word, if those things make you angry, especially if your sin makes you angry, you are most likely a mature believer. You have a heart that lines up with God's desires. Singler Ferguson comments very helpfully that angry Christians, which he says is something of a contradiction, angry Christians usually do not know themselves well enough, do not understand the jarring nature of their behavior, and have no sense that they have spiritual bad breath. So don't assume that your anger means that you represent God. That is what he's saying here in verse 20. The anger of man does not bring about, does not accomplish the righteousness of God. God doesn't need you to represent him. He can do that for himself. 
Leave the matter to him. A helpful verse to me with, with my own struggle with anger. Romans 12, 19. Never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. You may say this is all well and good, but how? How do I submit my anger to the Lord? How do I evaluate these things? And that leads to the third and final point this evening. Thirdly, how we should live the way we should live. So we've seen how we should live, the reason for it, and this is how we, how we accomplish that. Look at verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now we get to how. Not just how we should live and why, but how we do it. How do we live the way God calls us? It's right there in verse 21. Receive God's word with humility. Having the attitude of whatever God says is what I need to hear. Even the genealogies, I need to hear those. Whatever God requires, I will do. Think of Shorter Catechism 89. How is the word made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word, an effectual means of convincing and converting sinners and of building them up in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. That is what God does in the reading and the preaching of the word. He convinces and converts sinners, and he builds them up in holiness and comfort in the Lord Jesus. That's an amazing thing from this book, something that no other book can ever do. And short of Catechism 90. That's what God does with, with his word. How do, we, how do we make good on that? How do, we, how do we benefit from that? How is the word to be read and heard that it may become effectual to salvation? That the word may become effectual to salvation, we must attend thereunto with diligence, preparation, and prayer. Receive it with faith and love, and lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. We'll look more at practicing next week, Lord willing, but notice the exhortation how to hear God's word. Attend to it with diligence. Never, never miss the preaching of God's word or, or a Bible reading unless providentially hindered. Be diligent about it. Attend to it with preparation. Remember that you are hearing God himself speak. Yes, you hear the voice of James and Paul and John and all the other apostles and prophets, but you hear them because you hear the ultimate author of God himself. I sometimes think about how when I hear about trans, uh, books written not in English that are being translated, how excited I get. Man, Voss's dogmatics are coming out in English for the first time. This is so awesome. Bobbing's Reformed Ethics, all the nerd things that I love to, to find out about. That kind of excitement, that should pale in comparison to, I have the entire Word of God, not in the original language, which is good, in my own language. Have you ever seen third world countries, tribes in Africa and, and, and elsewhere, when they receive parts of the Bible? I've seen, I've seen video of of tribes who receive parts of the Bible and they jump up and down for joy. We finally have God's Word in our language. And I have multiple Bibles in my language and others. Am I evidencing the same kind of excitement, the same kind of preparation and joy in receiving this Word as other less privileged believers receive it? Attend to it prayerfully. 
when you come to God's Word, you are doing a supernatural activity. Do you appreciate how, how, the, how the Christian religion is supernatural through and through? God is a supernatural being. You got a supernatural salvation. It was not of your works or because of who you are. You have a supernatural Bible. Men didn't write this. God did. And you need a supernatural reading of the Bible. You don't read this like you read other books. Those, those observations from other books can be helpful, and reading it as literature can be helpful too, but, the, but you see the point. Reading God's Word is a supernatural activity. You need the same Spirit who penned these words to make you understand these words, because you and I are dull. We don't understand things the way we, we should. We need the teacher. We need the teacher to open up the Word to us. Receive it with faith. Believe all that it says for yourself. If God says it, then it is true, because God is truth itself. And receive it, as the Catechism says, with love. I can hear God himself speak to me and to my needs. God himself is speaking. Receive it with love. As we think about the command to receive God's word here, as James encourages us to do so, turn with me to another passage in Psalm 19. Psalm 19, and begin at verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. If If you look at the rest of this psalm, you see in the beginning how the psalmist points to God's glory in creation saying, everywhere you look, you see the glory of the triune God in what he has made. Everything bears witness to God's glory. Sunsets, trees, rocks, hills, everything. But as amazing as that is, as amazing as the revelation of God's glory is in creation, that is nothing compared to the revelation of his glory in his infallible word. That is the point of the contrast. As great as it is to see God's glory in his creation, and listen to this point, creation cannot reveal the gospel or God's will for your life. Yes, we do see the revelation of God's glory in what he has made, but you don't see how to be saved by looking at a sunset. You know how to be saved by opening the pages of God's word. That is why the revelation of God in his word should be far more precious to the mature believer. You cannot, how to, you cannot find out how to be saved anywhere else. Did you notice those, those awesome descriptions of God's Word in, in this psalm, in, in verses 7 to 11? Perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, true, desirable, correcting, rewarding. That's how the psalmist describes the Word of God that you have in your hands. You know what this reminds me of? It reminds me of a menu. You know when you go out to eat and you look at the description of a meal in the menu? What happens? It makes you want 
that meal. It makes you want to order that thing. You don't think, okay, I guess I'll order this filet mignon. Don't really feel like it. Or whatever meal you like. If that's, your, if that's your reaction when you read a good menu, then you need to check your pulse. Just the description of the thing makes you want to have that. It makes you want to eat it. More seriously, if you, don't, if you read this description of God's Word as perfect and clean and pure and right and, and desirable, if you read this description of God's Word and you don't want to read it for yourself, then you may not be a Christian. Well, then how can I want to read God's more? Then we do what James said back in chapter 1, receive it with humility. And all this talk of food, the Bible itself speaks this way. Think of the ways the Bible uses the imagery of a, of a good meal to show the pleasure of communion with God. Think of Psalm 63. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate you on you in the watches of the night. Fat and rich, satisfying food. Or Isaiah 25, speaking of the age to come when Christ returns. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged, well, uh, aged wine well-refined. All the top-shelf stuff. That, that's the way to describe, however imperfectly, the glory of the new heavens and new earth when Jesus Christ returns. We're thinking of Isaiah 55. That invitation, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Is this the way we approach reading God's Word as a hearty, rich meal? Similarly, think of the experiential way God portrays communion with him. In Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. That's an experiential thing to taste, not just to listen, although that is important, but listen in terms of tasting it. Receive it for yourself and make it your own. Do you see the point? You know a meal is good, not by knowing the list of ingredients, not by knowing the chef, not by watching a cooking show, those can have their, their, their place. The way you know a meal is good is if you taste it and you make it your own. How do you grow and mature as a believer? You receive God's word for yourself in its reading and hearing it preached. You benefit from it the same way you benefit from the good meal. You taste and see that the Lord is good by receiving his word. Let's turn back to James chapter 1. Notice the command there in verse 21. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. And this word, put away, or put off. Usually, when you see the relationship of promises and commands in the New Testament, it usually, usually this word, put off, comes with put on. You see that in Paul's epistles, and Paul will say, put off these ungodly things, put on these godly things. And, this, and it has that, that, that imagery of 
transferring garments. Remove the filthy garments and put on the clean ones. Uh, James does it differently here. He commands us to put off and then what? Receive. Put off what is ungodly. Receive what is godly. Receive the implanted word with meekness. You see that word receive there? That key word receive here means to welcome with a special interest. Welcome God's word with special interest. Welcome the word into your heart. Welcome the word for your own benefit. Be a glad recipient of the word because of what it is. God himself speaking in it. So James is calling us to receive the word for your own benefit. Do you need to be told to eat? No, you want to eat to live. Do you need to be told to read God's word? No, it should be the desire of your heart because without it you will die. That is the same kind of thing James is saying here. Notice the result there. What happens when the implanted word is received at the end of verse 21? It is able to save your souls. Remember how we saw earlier that God used the word to save you for the very first time? God uses the word to bring you home to glory when Jesus Christ returns. He uses his word for salvation from beginning to end. It is the word that God uses to make you a Christian. It's the word that God uses to keep you a Christian. And it is the word that God uses to take you home to glory at the return of Jesus Christ. Well, Helmus de Brockle helpfully comments that whoever desires salvation will esteem and acknowledge the word of God as necessary and profitable and will be desirous for this word. So you see the value here of God's word how it is, God, it is the word that God used to save us, to keep us, and to take us home from beginning, middle, and end. God's word saved us in the past, and it will save us all the way into eternity, future. That should make us think of the line from Amazing Grace. Through many to- dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. We could say the same thing about God's word there. Tis God's word has brought me safe thus far, and God's word will lead me home. A few points of application as we close. First, maybe there is some hypocrite here. Maybe there is someone who is self-deceived. You think that you are saved because you know what the Bible says, because you know some things about what God has said in his word. And you think, of course I am saved. I'm a decent churchgoer. I I do attend the reading and preaching of God's Word unless providentially hindered. I know what the Bible says. I know it to be true. Then I must warn you, it is not external awareness of God's Word that saves. It is internal reception that saves. Not just knowing about what it says, but have you received it for yourself? Do you read about how sinners deserve the wrath of God and think, I am that sinner who deserves God's wrath? And do you read about how Jesus Christ is the Savior of sinners and say, I need Him as my Savior and my Lord? Maybe God's Word has not penetrated your heart. It just sort of lies on the surface. Kind of like how Jesus talks about in the parable of the sower, the, the seed just kind of sits at the top instead of it being penetrated down into the soil for a harvest. You haven't had an intimate, vital impression of God's Word on your heart. You, you are not a branch joined to the vine. Do not merely affirm that the Bible is true. Believe it. Trust in it. Trust in the one whose voice speaks in it. 
Secondly, for the believer, in order to be a hearer of God's Word, remember not just what it is, remember who you are. Think of it this way. If God is your Father and you are His child by grace, that means that the Bible is your Father speaking to you at every point. You've been brought into right relationship with God through Christ, and now He speaks to you in His Word. You have communion with the God of the universe, and for that reason, Bible reading and hearing it preach is not drudgery. It should be delight. Third, in order to be a hearer of God's Word, remove what does not belong. That's exactly what we see there in verse 21, isn't it? Those are the two aspects of sanctification, two aspects of growth and grace, mortifying and vivifying. Those are older words, but, but helpful words. Mortifying, removing what does not belong from our hearts and lives, and vivifying, adding to our hearts what belongs, and nourishing what it should be there. Mortifying be the negative part, remove these things, put them away, put them to death even, as Paul says, and vivifying, cultivate, receiving the implanted Word. So growing in God's grace necessarily has those two aspects. Remove what does not belong and add and cultivate what does belong. You need to have both to mature and grow as a believer. Think of it in terms of your physical health. Let's say you eat well, you eat meat and eggs and fish and fruit and vegetables and all kinds of good stuff, good nutrient-packed, healthy, tasty things. You exercise, get the blood pumping, pack on some muscle. You do, you do all the things that are right for your body. You add the things that do belong. But you never feel quite 100%. You sleep enough, but you're always tired. You're achy everywhere. You think, what's the problem? I'm dieting, I'm exercising, I'm adding all the things that belong. And the answer is, among other things, the answer could be that your body is full of toxins. Your body has all these hazardous chemicals flowing through. That's why you aren't healthy. Maybe you're, you're getting toxins from something you, you, you breathe, something in your, in your clothes, or something you ate, however you got in there. Even though you're adding good things to your body, you still need to remove the bad things. You see the point. It doesn't matter how many good things you add, if you don't remove the bad things, you won't be healthy. So the same thing is true in your growth in grace. You need to add the good and cultivate it. You need to remove the bad as well. Think of it this way. You can study God's Word, but if you're also addicted to pornography, you're never going to grow as a Christian. You could pray and use all the means of grace, but if you let your anger run free, as as we've seen here, you're never going to mature as a believer. Why? Because those things don't belong together. Again, in terms of 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 the clothing imagery, you can't put your clean clothes on top of your dirty clothes. Remove the filthy and then put on the clean. Think about how Paul puts it there in Romans 8. He doesn't say remove the deeds of the body or take away the deeds of the body. It's stronger than that. Put them to death. Show no mercy to your sin. Put it to death. Fourthly and finally, in order to be a hearer of God's word, hear God's word. All these other things can be helpful, but it's not rocket science. Hear God's Word. As J.C. Rowell said, the way to do a thing is to do it. Again, this is a supernatural thing. Christianity is a supernatural religion through and through, not founded by religious enthusiasts, 
This is a religion that is broken into time and space from heaven. This book broken into time and space from heaven, from God himself. Christianity is a religion that is not of this world, as Jesus told Pilate. So when you read your Bible, you are engaging in a supernatural activity. You hear God himself, and God is using his word to make you more like himself. He uses his word to lead you to glory. That's how God uses his word in your life. So the implication is we should use that word for our growth in grace. Receive it and listen to it. Do you know that line in our closing hymn? It says, O grant us grace, almighty Lord, to read and mark thy holy word, its truths with meekness to receive, and by its holy precepts live. Finally, listen to the counsel of J.C. Ryle. The Bible applied to the heart by the Holy Ghost is the chief means by which men are built up and established in the faith after their conversion. It is able to cleanse them, to sanctify them, to instruct them in righteousness, and to furnish them thoroughly for all good works. The Spirit ordinarily does these things by the written word, sometimes by the word read and sometimes by the word preached, but seldom, if ever, without the word. The Bible can show a believer how to walk in this world so as to please God. It can teach him how to glorify Christ in all the relations of life and can make him a good master, servant, subject, husband, father, or son. It can enable him to bear afflictions and lackings without murmuring and say, it is well. It can enable him to look down into the grave and say, I fear no evil. It can enable him to think on judgment and eternity and not feel afraid. It can enable him to bear persecution without flinching and to give up liberty and life rather than deny Christ's truth. Is he drowsy in soul? It can awaken him. Is he mourning? It can comfort him. Is he erring? It can restore him. Is he weak? It can make him strong. Is he in company? It can keep him from evil. Is he alone? It can talk with him. All this the Bible can do for all believers, for the least as well as the greatest, for the richest as well as the poorest. It has done it for thousands already and is doing it for thousands every day. The man who has the Bible and the Holy Spirit in his heart has everything which is absolutely needful to make him spiritually wise. Amen, and may God make us Bible Christians in this place.